Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. This is the podcast we like to call Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always is astronomer at large Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Good to be with the Space Nuts again. Yes, indeed. And thanks to all our nutty friends who keep listening in for reasons we cannot possibly fathom. But uh, we do appreciate it. Now, today, Fred, we're going to talk about uh, the, the big news this week, and that is the landing of InSight on the planet Mars. And uh, by all reports, everything went swimmingly, which is great because uh, you know, there's no water on Mars. But they, they landed and they're happy and... Now it can get on with the business of finding out what's going on inside. We're also going to uh, look at a comet that will be literally visible uh, to the naked eye in the next few weeks. And we're going to find out about uh, another exoplanet. And Elon Musk is um, nutty as a fruitcake. He's changing the name of his BFR spacecraft to something pretty lame from what I can understand. But we'll find out more about that later. But first, uh, the big news of the week, InSight is um, on the surface of Mars, landed safely. Uh, those six and a half minutes of, uh, of trepidation turned out to be nothing to worry about. It's all good. Well, that's right. It's only nothing to worry about because people did such careful work beforehand uh, to get it. The spacecraft um, hitting the Martian atmosphere at exactly the right angle, 11 degrees, I believe it was, uh, and at the right speed, of course, something approaching six kilometres per second. Yeah, so six and a half minutes to slow down from six kilometres per second to uh, to zero. Mm. Uh, it perfectly. We got an immediate image, actually, back from the surface of uh, the surface of Mars, seen through the rather dusty lens cap, because when when a spacecraft like um, uh, InSight lands. Uh, because it uses rocket motors to to stop its final descent uh, and drop it down neatly onto the surface, it kicks up a lot of dust. And in fact, I think that's where we are at now um, in the process. We're waiting for all the dust to settle. It takes a few days uh, for that to happen. Yeah, uh, it's so the same be, as where I live, actually. <laughs> would be. We had when a massive dust storm last week. When you arrive with your rocket motors blasting, you kick up a lot of dust. Yeah. It sounds a lot like Space Nuts does that. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the big weight, though, um, it comes because uh, what the mission scientists want to do is take a very good look at the place where InSight has landed, uh, because they've got this um, sort of hinged arm that can deploy the seismometer on the surface, which is one of the main reasons why InSight has gone there, uh, a seismometer to listen for Mars quakes to tell us more about the interior uh, of Mars. Uh, that has to be deployed uh, in the right place. You don't want it kind of tilted up on a stone or something like that where it just won't pick up vibrations from the ground. So they'll do a very careful survey, which will take, I think, about two months and then deploy the seismometer, and then we'll start listening for Mars quakes. And, uh, and me- do, you, do you think they'll actually detect Mars quakes? Does it, is there any evidence 
at the moment that they do have them? Um, well, the things that would cause my, the thing about Mars is, as far as we know, it doesn't have plate tectonics. So it doesn't have, you know, crustal plates sliding under one another and tearing apart and all, all the kinds of things that happen here on Earth, mm. uh, which predominantly cause earthquakes. Um, so that's a phenomenon that doesn't happen. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why people want to know what's going on there, because, you know, it's, the two planets are relatively similar, but Mars uh, has just one crustal plate. Um, so what you would expect to find is, first of all, meteorite impacts that would cause um, vibrations that would be picked up by this seismometer. It's sufficiently sensitive to do that. Uh, and also perhaps even... Uh, vibrations in the crust caused by shrinkage of the crust over very long periods of time, but that too could cause Mars quakes. So all of these uh, sorts of things, plus uh, convection in the in the mantle of Mars, the the plastic layer underneath the crust, that's all the kind of thing that will be listened for. And I think they're pretty confident of hearing stuff. I mean, there is a precedent here, um, Andrew, because the seismometers left behind by the Apollo astronauts on the Moon. Uh, picked up enough stuff that we now have a much better idea of the internal structure of the moon than we had before. So it's not the first time this kind of thing's been done. Uh, the other experiment that's being deployed is the, uh, the, the temperature gradient experiment, where a, a little mole will dig down into, into the surface of Mars and carry with it uh, heat sensors. So we might detect something about the um, amount of heat flow coming from the planet's interior. It's not going to uh, go very far down. I think five meters is the maximum that uh, people are expecting it to go. That's quite a long way, though. Holy um, moly. Yeah. Oh, quite so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done, old chap. Uh, trust you to get one like that. <laughs> yeah, I so, know. Uh, the, the bottom line um, um, is that nothing's gone down the hole. Everything is going well. Uh, Insight seems to be on track to be a very successful mission. And we look forward to, to two years of data taking once they've got the uh, seismometer established. First and foremost, though, they've got to successfully remove the lens cap because there's been some dramatic lens cap failures was, over the yeah. years. Uh, I think was uh, was it a Russian probe that landed it, on Venus it, and it melted to the camera? Or something uh, to some, that yeah, it was one of the Venera probes that uh, the Soviet Union sent to mm. Venus. Uh, uh, well, the good news is that lens cap's already gone. Oh, uh, good, good. All right. Well, that's the biggest problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be more from inside, I'm sure. There's a lot of data to come, and uh, we'll be very excited to see what they learn, and uh, we'll certainly tell you about it here on Space Nuts. Uh, now, Fred, we're moving straight on to our second topic, and that is uh, of uh, a comet called uh, Virtanen. And the reason uh, we're talking about that is because it's uh, almost upon us, not literally, but uh, it will be visible in the night's sky, we hope. Uh, yes, that's right. It, it will indeed be visible in the night sky. It's, um, uh, it's a comet that... Uh, <laughs> the, the, the person who uh, discovered it, despite having a... Norwegian or Scandinavian sounding name uh, it was actually American, so it's probably Wirtanen ah, okay. <laughs> with a W, um, who uh, was at the Lick Observatory when he discovered this comet back in 1948. Um, it's a, a, a sh what we call a short period comet uh, with a an orbital period of about 6.7 years. Uh, and um, 
from time to time it passes close to Jupiter, which kind of disturbs the orbit. So its, it's orbital period changes slightly. It's very interesting uh, the way these things evolve because of the gravity of the giant planet Jupiter. Uh, but uh, this year we've got a really good chance of seeing it in the night sky um, as it progresses southwards. Uh, it, it, it's um, closest to the Earth on, I think, December the 15th and 16th, when it will attain what we call uh, what we call um, a third magnitude, which means well within the naked eye visibility. Mm. Um, the only problem is uh, it will be rather a full moon at that time. Uh, and um, the comet itself has got a very diffuse coma. The coma is the, uh, the, the, the basically the you know the nebulous region around the comet caused by the the, the gas uh, the, the the ices on the comet outgassing and uh, turning into a plasma. Um, so it's it's diffuse. It means it's not you know a well defined, sharply defined object. Uh, it is uh, going to be um, I think quite difficult, but with binoculars. It should be easy to see this this sort of fuzzy patch. Um, there will be plenty of places on the web to check for um, Space Nuts listeners to check exactly where it will appear in their skies. Uh, but it's looking good. There's some very nice images already of uh, Vietnam and taken by you know people with um, normal small size telescopes. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah. green, which is yeah. The green is I think that comes from carbon monoxide emission, if I remember rightly. So it's so, a pretty dirty comet. <laughs> All comets are dirty. Yeah, uh, that's what they are. Balls of dirt held together by ice. <laughs> mm. Okay, so that's one to keep an eye out for, and yeah. it'll be sure. closest to Earth since 1950, and uh, that'll happen on December 15 and 16. And I'm guessing because of our orbital properties and its movement, most people will be able to see it. Yes, I think that's right. Um, it's uh, it, you know, it, it it I think it's. It's it's in the northern sky uh, when uh, when it's at its closest, but it's sufficiently far south that we should see it uh, in the south too. Mm. Okay, something to keep an eye out for, and you can put that one in your diary, and you don't have to wait a couple of billion years like most of the stuff we talk about. So uh, keep an eye out for um, Comet Witanen on December fifteen sixteen. If you've got the gear, you'll be able to see it uh, sooner, uh, if not already and for a lot longer. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. 
uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to focus our attention on an exoplanet, HR 8799C, uh, and it's making the news because they think they've been able to uh, learn a fair bit about this one. And, and, and that's what, you know, it's one thing to discover exoplanets. It's another thing to really, you know, get down and dirty and find out what's going on on the surface or, or below. So uh, this could be exciting. It is. It's a very much a pointer to the future, is this story, Andrew, because uh, this is a, a solar system that we already know about. Um, it was discovered, I think, uh, quite a few years ago, and it's one of the very few planetary systems or exoplanetary systems, in other words, planetary systems around other stars. It's one of the very few that we can image the planets directly. Uh, most, of course, as we've discussed many times, most of these planetary systems that we know about are not directly observed. What we see is either the dimming of the light of the star as its, as its planets pass in front of it, uh, or we see the wobble of the star's motion as uh, the planets pull it one way and another mm. uh, as they go around in their orbits. So th those two methods have been very successful in, in discovering planets of other stars. Uh, but one or, just one or two of these planetary systems are capable of being imaged by, uh, by ground-based large telescopes, partly because they're, they're face-on, if you see what I mean. Their solar systems um, are you know, the, the plane of the solar system uh, for these stars is at right angles to our line of sight. So what we see is the is the star in the middle and the planets going round. It's just like a planned view of, of the solar system. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, this particular one, it's around a star which rejoices in the name of HR 8799. And as you've said, the planet we're talking about is, is C, which is 8799C. But HR 8799 was the first star with planets uh, to have them directly imaged uh, from, from Earth. Okay. Uh, back in actually 10 years ago, uh, which is quite extraordinary that we've been doing this for so long. But what's happened now at the Keck uh, Observatory, which has its telescopes in Hawaii on Mauna Kea, the, on the big island of Hawaii, you've been there, I've been there, yep. it's a great, great place. Um, uh, they've used a new instrument at the Keck Observatory, uh, which uses something called adaptive optics. And adaptive optics essentially compensates for the blurring effect 
of the Earth's atmosphere. It's why we're, we're going ahead and building ground-based telescopes with mirrors 20 or 30 meters in diameter, uh, because um, it, it's only worthwhile doing that if you can get rid of the blurring effects of the atmosphere. And you can do this with this technology of adaptive optics. It's quite fascinating stuff. You fire a laser up uh, into the sky, uh, where it's of a particular color, the laser, which excites um, uh, luminance in a layer of sodium, which is at about 90 kilometers from uh, the Earth's surface. That layer of sodium comes from re-entering or from entering meteorites or meteors. That's where it comes from. Mm. And that, that basically forms artificial stars, which you can then lock onto and correct for the turbulence of the Earth's atmosphere. It's great stuff. Uh, so what that means is you can see very fine detail. And that's clearly what you need when you're looking for planets close in to a star that's uh, rather a long way away. I'm trying to find the distance of uh, this star because I can't remember what it is. Um, it's certainly uh, in the, you know, it's in the, um, uh, the, the solar neighborhood, uh, but that, the, I, can't, I can't find a figure at the moment. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll check up on that. Uh, somebody, will, somebody will phone in and tell us. They will. Uh, yeah, we're waiting for the call right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, 129 light years. There you are. Got uh -huh. it. <laughs> it was in the small print, wasn't it? Yeah, the small print, the fine print. <laughs> that's where it always is. 129 light years away, as the crow flies, uh, is this planetary system. So it's it's a good way off. And to see planets orbiting a star at that distance, you need to be able to penetrate very fine detail. But also, you've got to have a way of blocking out the light of the star itself, which is much brighter than the light of its planets. Uh, and that is what the particular instrument that we're talking about does. In addition to that, though, uh, once you've got the adaptive optics system working and, the, and got rid of the light of the star, you can then analyze the light of the planets. Um, with a you know spectro spectrometer, um, the device that forms the the rainbow spectrum of these objects and looks for the the barcode of information in it. Mm. Uh, and so astronomers have done that in particular with this object HR 8799C. It's a gas giant planet. It is uh, round about uh, seven times the mass of Jupiter. Its year is 200 of our years. Wow. So. It, that tells you it's quite a long way from the plat from the parent star because it's got such a, a long orbital period, uh, and that of course is one reason why you can carefully analyse the light from it without getting interference from the star. That's massive. That planet so, seven times the mass. Yeah, it's of a big one. It's it's definitely a big one. Um, if it was twice that size, it would uh, count as a brown dwarf star. Yeah. Because brown dwarfs, uh, when you get bigger than 13 times the mass of Jupiter, you get something called deuterium burning, uh, which is a low-level nuclear process. And that produces a, a, a what effectively is a halfway between a planet and a star. But so this is not that level. This is definitely would, it, would it be fair to say that gas giants, maybe not all of them, but some of them are failed stars? Or Yeah, sometimes. I mean, Jupiter is sometimes referred to as a failed star. It would have to be, as I said... 13 times more massive than it is for this process to be taking place. But mm. um, it didn't quite get enough gas around it when it was forming to get up to that mass. So it's, it's a planet rather than a star. Uh, so the bottom line in this story is that uh, what was found was the existence of water in the planet's atmosphere uh, and also a lack of methane. Um, methane, I think, is 
is fairly prevalent in Jupiter's atmosphere, but there is no methane detected uh, in the atmosphere of HR 8799C, which I'm sure excites the planetary scientists because they can then de deduce what what interesting stuff has been happening on that planet throughout and its life. It also proves that nobody's up there herding cattle. Uh, quite so. Mm. There are almost certainly no cattle on. <laughs> on uh, HRA 799C. <laughs> oh dear. Now, what do we know about the star that it's orbiting? Is it a stock standard star or is it bigger? Or is it uh, my, dwarf? My or? recollection is that it is um, uh, that it's a, 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 a basically a red dwarf star. It's, it's not a, a, a kind of you know, a sun-sized star. I think it is a, a dwarf star. And, and the reason I'm saying that is that it's got um, an HR designation which I think um, tells you that it is, um, you know, an unusual object. It's a young star, actually, and has um, quite a lot of dust around it, which means it's still, you know, it's still in its relative infancy. And the suggestion is that this gas giant that we're observing is a particularly young gas giant as well. Mm. And being HR 8799C suggests that this is not the only planet there are, in fact, A and B and indeed D as well. So there you are. Hmm. And and the good news is it's um, it's visible. Uh, we can photograph it. So um, and and I've uh, I've seen a couple of those photos. So um, I mean, all you see in terms of the planet is a dot, but uh, you you do get the visibility of it. So um, yes, instead, right. instead of an artist's impression, artist's impressions are great, but when you can see the real thing, it's um, it's even more exciting. So it's even more exciting. Absolutely. Mm. Well, it's yeah. good that we can learn a bit more about um, what is a um, well, in the scheme of things, a nearby neighbour, uh, universally speaking. So, um, yeah, uh, and I'm sure they'll be studying it even more to, to find out all the secrets. That's of... right. So, so that sorry, the, the the unfinished business here is that this points the way very much towards uh, what we might do with the 30 metre class telescopes. In fact, the Keck Observatory is very closely involved with the TMT, which is the 30 metre telescope. Uh, University of California and all the rest of them uh, that contribute to that, uh, Caltech. Um, the 30 metre will have similar instrumentation, but because you're gathering so much more light and you're seeing so much more detail, then you can start looking at much more subtle signatures in the atmospheres of planets, including biosignatures. The yes. Tells you there might be life there. That's what we're looking for. Hmm. Yeah. I'm still shaking my head about TMT. <laughs> anyway, um, we'll uh, certainly let you know if there's any uh, changes uh, or, or discoveries regarding um, that planet and maybe some others um, as the technology improves. You're listening to Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, of course. Okay, we checked all four systems, and here we go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to Elon Musk. He's um, certainly achieved um, probably more mentions on this podcast than anyone else that I recall, um, perhaps. But that's because he's always in the news, and he's always got something interesting to say or do. Although this one, <laughs> this one might be a little bit of a head-scratcher. He wants to rename his... Um, BFR, the Big Falcon rocket. Uh, that's right. So, the, so this is um, just to set the scene. Um, this is a it's a spacecraft that will carry people. Uh, it's distinct from the rocket booster that will send it up into space, 
which is now called the Super Heavy uh, because it is capable of sending very large loads into space. It doesn't exist yet, but it, it will be built. Mm -hmm. um, so originally the, the plan for this spacecraft, the passenger carrying spacecraft, uh, it was originally called the MCT, which was the Mars Colonial Transporter. And then uh, Elon didn't like that, so he renamed it the ITS, which is the Interplanetary Transport System. And then it became, probably, a, I guess, a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, it became the BFR. And um, <laughs> that stands for... Well, you've got to listen carefully to this. It stands for the Big Falcon Rocket. Yes, it does. <laughs> because Falcon is the name of the rocket sequence that, uh, or the series of rockets that that uh, Elon has developed. Um, Falcon 9, I think, is the is the the current one. But the BFR was the Big Falcon Rocket. But he's decided he didn't like and, that. And apologies to all the Irish, because with an Irish accent, that means something completely different. It probably does. Yes, uh, it's now. Um, we're yeah. We should, <laughs> we should probably apologise to everybody because it could mean something. It could mean anything. But it's now called Starship. No, Starship is um, a lot easier to say. Really, is that what he came up with? Starship. Yeah, yeah. It that was already taken by a band. I mean, yeah, indeed, that's right. Yes. Mm. So Starship is the the new the new version. Um, he has been, we haven't seen what it looks like yet, but uh, Elon has given us a tempter with a tweet that said that the new version is very exciting and delightfully counterintuitive. Now, a lot of what Elon does is counterintuitive. Uh, who would have thought of bringing rocket boosters back to Earth or making electric cars? So I think it could be quite interesting to, to see what the, uh, the Starship looks like and what it sounds like. Yes, indeed. Um, but, you know, if Elon Musk is attached to it, it, uh, it will happen. He does seem to put his money where his mouth is. Sometimes he puts his mouth in the in the wrong direction and gets himself into trouble in the news. That's been the case of late uh, a couple of times. But um, he gets on with the business of, of making these things happen. And I think that's really exciting. And now that the space race has sort of gone commercial, it really it will gain pace, I imagine. We're going to see a lot more development over a shorter period of time um, with so many more governments involved as well. It's, it's, and it's, it's a very exciting time in, um, in terms of uh, space travel and uh, tourist opportunities. Well, that's right, as well as the you know, commercial aspects of it all. Uh, so, um, Elon, I think you and I have spoken about this before. There, he has a, a plan uh, to send a friend of his... Uh, are on a trip around the moon in 2023 with this uh, um, sorry with the starship i can remember bfr but i can't remember starship, starship. yeah it's very hard <laughs> it's to just, remember it's just just too obvious just too obvious so um this um japanese billionaire you and i have spoken about him before and I'm, I'm i'm sure i've mispronounced his name before i think it's yusaku metsawa uh he is the first passenger who's basically going to be a paying customer on on this on the starship uh, with uh, I believe a number of his colleagues but the plan is to send the spacecraft along with its passengers uh, around the backside of the moon 
um, basically to do what Apollo 8 did exactly 50 years ago. Mm. Um, do you remember Christmas Eve 1968? Uh, you don't, but I do. I do, uh, actually. Very I, exciting. I with, was uh, very young, but I do uh, recall it. Yeah. Vaguely. I was very young, too compared with now. <laughs> um, uh, Apollo 8 going around the back of the moon and taking that marvellous, um, you know, Earthrise picture that became yes. so famous. Mm. Uh, that's um, what's called a free return trajectory. You basically send it on a path to the moon, but one that will be captured by the moon's gravity, but not to the extent that it will go into orbit around the moon. It just comes back again, more or less on the same on the same path, and then makes re-entry and comes back to Earth, as as happened with um, with Apollo 8. So um, interesting times. That's um, five years away, uh, Andrew. I hope Space Nuts is still going then, so we can talk about uh, what happens to this um, very interesting and. Uh, delightfully counterintuitive spacecraft when it goes around behind the moon. I just think it's exciting that privateers can do now, well, will soon do, uh, what was, a, you know, a, a very difficult operation in the 60s. Yeah, um, it's a big, big government. That's yes, exactly. And and now it's um, it's private enterprise that's uh, looking at doing these things while while the governments do the other stuff that well, we often don't know about. Yeah. But um, and and he's of course not the only one. There are there are a few ventures um, coming together to try and get tourists in space. I think it's interesting that he wants to send a friend. I mean, if you're going to do that, <laughs> find your worst enemy, man, and <laughs> send him. Well, maybe we don't. Maybe that's it, but we don't know that. Mm, we don't. <laughs> There's a conspiracy theory for you. Yeah, well, we'll keep that <laughs> under our hats. But, uh, yeah, well, we'll watch with interest. And uh, as always, uh, a lot of the stories we talk about have um, potential follow-up because there, there's, there's never any completion to astronomy we always have something new to talk about and when we talk about that there's always something new to discover about that discovery yes indeed <laughs> and so it goes on uh, now we didn't get to any questions this week um, uh, which was by design we wanted to talk about a few things that were going on uh, as we speak uh, but we st certainly haven't shut the door on questions to space nuts so please send them to us uh, via Facebook it seems to be the uh, the most preferred way and it's the easiest way and I know how to use Facebook so I can find them sometimes it takes me a week or two but I will uh, I will get to them and we do appreciate all your feedback and all your um, uh, support of our uh, of our little podcast. And Fred, as always, thank you so much. Nice talking to you again, and we'll catch up ultra soon. Sounds great, Andrew. I look forward to it, and we'll uh, keep our eye on the heavens and uh, let everybody know what's happening. Indeed. Fred Watson, an astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, your host, thanks again for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.